our heart this morning. Well, we have had many missionaries pass through here, stand in this place and share with you. I don't know if you've really caught on sometimes what they do. When they come back, one of their major responsibilities is what? It's to tell you what God is doing in the place where He has called them. But you know what? A lot can happen in a year. And so another one of the responsibilities should always be to preach the Word of God. In fact, when we were raising missionary support to go out, I never shared anything of our ministry from the pulpit. I would always stand at the back. Sean and I would talk to people as they came. But this was for the Word of God, to strengthen the churches. So as these missionaries come back, they share. But again, in, in even a year, things can change drastically. We had gone to Costa Rica. Our, our first furlough, gone just barely a year, came back. First Sunday we were there. I think I've told you a little bit about this, but it it's, it's really drives home the point here. First Sunday we come back, there is a special church meeting that evening. So we go to the meeting and we find out that the pastor had created a serious issue in the church, had been asked to leave, and was now threatening to bring lawyers and to take the church to court. A year. And we come in that very first day, there's this wave of, of trouble in the church that, that we could just experience. Unfortunately, that happens all too often because missionaries will come back every three to four years and the dynamic of the church will have changed. Now, keep this in mind as we're looking this morning at our text because we find ourselves at a crossroad in the narrative. Paul has ended his second missionary journey and he's about to go out on his third missionary journey. And it's easy to think that, you know, the, the, the stuff that we're looking at this morning is really just incidental stuff. It, it's transitional. It's certainly not as important as what we read about the preaching of the Word of God going forth to all of these wonderful new cities and the things God's doing through Paul. We have some details about Paul, and then we have these two small vignettes that seem to be connected with the issue of baptism. But it all looks disjointed, doesn't it? It looks disconnected, and again, even, shall we say, less important than the gospel going forth and what we read of Paul. But I want to challenge you this morning that these verses that we're looking at, they're integral to understanding everything that's going on. This area, this section from 8.18 to 9.1 through 7 is organically connected in that little phrase at the end of verse 23 where it says, strengthening the churches. So if you have your pencil, you can just underline that in, in your Bible. If you have a, a phone, uh, underline it or highlight it there. Strengthening the churches. And it all starts with Paul. That's where we start in verse 18, isn't it? Paul is setting sail for Syria. And then he goes from there to Ephesus. And they want him to stay a little bit. They, they want to hear a little bit more, but he says, no, I've got to go on. So from there, after a short visit, he goes to Caesarea, to Jerusalem, and then on to Antioch. You know, in, in the matter of those short verses, the, the author, Luke, has packed in the story of 1,500 miles of traveling, about six months 
of Paul's journey. That's a lot to, to put into just a couple verses. Now, again, we look at that and we say, why is he going back to Antioch? He, he was a teacher of the law, of the Jewish rabbinical uh, law, back in Jerusalem. That's where he was raised, that's where he was taught, that's where he has all of his friends, his contacts. Why is he going to Antioch? Well, the simple truth is that Antioch had a new place in his heart. This was the place that had sent him out as a missionary. They had commissioned him and sent him, and they had even supported him as they were able over the last few years. And because Luke is scrunching all of this information into just a few sentences, we call it an economy of words, we really need to kind of pull out those things which the first generation of readers of this, the, the ancient world would have recognized and said these are important. Things that will guide us as we go forward. First of all, we hear of Priscilla and Aquila. They're going to become the important element in teaching Apollos more of the way of the Lord. But we do have two spiritual hooks in this little description of Paul that are important. First of all, he's cut his hair at Sancreia. And now as he comes, he goes to the, the, uh, the synagogue. So he has obviously made a Nazarite vow. He's come to the end of his second missionary journey, and he's saying, I vow to dedicate myself in this next step, wherever God is leading me. And, and he goes to Ephesus, and he does that. He, he says, the vow is over. And he presents himself in the synagogue. So his second missionary journey is coming to an end. He's again separating himself, consecrating himself unto the service of the Lord, wherever that may be, whatever direction God would give him. We're not for sure at the moment. We'll see next week. But he's presenting himself for service. The second hook we have is when they ask him to stay in Ephesus, what's his comment? I will return if it's the Lord's will. Now, that's not something we say very often today. I don't know if it's because we feel like we're in control of our setting all the time and we're so busy at things, but we have that spiritual principle from James chapter 4, verse 15, don't we? And basically, it's this. You better not be presumptuous about the will of God. You don't know where you're going to be in a week, a year. Why would you desire to be presumptuous of God's will and to run ahead of God? So the picture we have of Paul at this moment, he's a seasoned missionary. He's an evangelist. He's come home to his sending church. His forward ministry in preaching the gospel and going forth into those hinterland areas where no one has heard nor received the gospel yet is temporarily at least coming to a close. He's consecrating himself unto God. But he doesn't quite know yet, at least from our perspective, where God is moving him yet. And yet, he's still not willing to go anywhere that God has not said, this is my will for you. He doesn't want to be presumptuous about that. So he's not committing himself to go to Ephesus. He's a missionary. He's coming home on furlough. 
And he's got some kind of a plan, some kind of a, kind of a timetable, and he's unwilling to deviate that from that because he knows he's got responsibilities. The one thing we do know about this return trip is that his ministry amongst the churches is characterized by strengthening the disciples. His stopover in Ephesus, again, it was short. It was marked by preaching and teaching Jesus Christ. Uh, preaching the, the fullness of the gospel. That's why they wanted him to stay. They said, we want to hear more of this strange teaching. He landed in Caesarea. Verse 22 says, he went up and greeted the church. Now, that's not the church in Caesarea. When it says he went up, that is a technical term in the original language saying that he actually went to the temple. So he landed in Caesarea, and then he went inland to the temple of Jerusalem. And there he tells the original mother church all that God has been doing on his second trip. You know, how preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is making all of these wonderful inroads that the forgiveness of sin is, is reaping true spiritual rewards in people coming to faith in Christ. Now, the other thing about missionaries is they go off of furlough. I don't know if you realize, they go back and the first thing they have to do really is basically reintroduce themselves to their contacts. They want to go back and, and see how the families have been doing where they've ministered before, speak in the churches where they've been before, travel in those areas where they've had contacts. And that's exactly what Paul does. And it's exactly what he does, but he does so in a way that he's not saying, look where I've come from, I've come from the Jerusalem church, or you know, look at all these wonderful things. He is strengthening the believers by preaching Christ, by simply coming. I, I want you to know in a more profound way, a deeper, more intimate way. And, and you know what? You need to hear again. You need to be strengthened because in this context of this Roman world, there are all these pressures on you. So he continues, as a good missionary, going back to the field. He's doing a bit of a circuitous route going to the next stage, but he's visiting all of these churches that he helped plant. And as he goes, he's preaching the gospel. He's telling them about Christ. So this transition between Paul's second missionary journey and his third missionary journey is important because it touches the very story of Apollos. Because Apollos is going to be the one who follows after Paul. Paul was the pioneer. He's gone out into all of these areas. And what we're going to see in a moment is that Apollos will actually follow after and be the one who will build up those fledgling churches but there's a problem, there's an issue with Apollos' understanding of the gospel. So Priscilla and Aquila have to step in. And we'll get to that in a second. Now there's another transition we need to recognize here in this context. And I think it's really important to recognize there's, there's three transitions. This is the second one. Because everything else seems like a linear history of the gospel going forth and, and Paul preaching, right? But in this intermediate time, we see this time of transition, and it really defines everything. That other transition is signaled for us in chapter 9, verse 6. When the 12 disciples who are from Ephesus hear Jesus Christ preached by Paul, 
they receive him as Lord and Savior and the Holy Spirit comes down. There's an outpouring of the Spirit, isn't there? So not only is there a crossroads in Paul's ministry, there is a crossroads in the advancement of the gospel that defines the context of our, of our reading this morning. It's signaled by that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't the first time we've heard of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is it? First time is in Acts chapter 2. That's when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. It is the definitive sign for the apostles that God has started a new stage in his redemptive plan. Literally, when Peter's preaching, he says, this is that. It's a quote from Joel 2. That outpouring in chapter 2 is what we could call the crowning promise of the gospel. Salvation is now available through the Messiah. He has come. The kingdom of God is upon us. So that's chapter 2. But we saw it also in chapter 8. That's when we saw the first Samaritans who came to saving faith in Christ. Now, you may say, well, it's not a huge step, but remember, culturally, the Samaritans were, were hated. They were way down on the social pole, so much so that you didn't cross through their area. You went around to get to another point on the map. So these people were considered half-breeds. They were Gentiles who, well, they were, they were Jews who had intermixed with the uh, uh, the Assyrian reoccupation of the north, and so they had all of this bloodline brought down through the Gentiles, but they were hated. But as this next step in the gospel happens, there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In, John, or in uh, chapter 10, when we see the first God-fearing Gentile come to saving faith, that's Cornelius and his family, there's again an outpouring of this Holy Spirit. And now in chapter 19, the fourth and the last time, we see again the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This time it's not the Jews. It's not the half-Jews. It's not the God-fearing Gentiles. But the Gentiles who are simply seekers. Who have no context, no background. Remember the words of Luke, well, Jesus recorded for us in Luke in chapter 1. What was that? You will receive the power of the Holy Spirit and has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. But when we put the, the promise of the gospel going forth in these successive waves to these new levels of redemption recorded for us, with alongside the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we see that the Holy Spirit is that which God uses to confirm that this is the next logical outpouring or, or inclusion of the gospel going to all peoples. This is God's confirmation. Yes, Jesus died, and that through his death, faith and repentance is available. At each step in this new plan, as, as it advances through, the, through Acts, through Jerusalem, through Judea, through Samaria, Ephesus is to the ends of the earth. Not necessarily geographically, when you look at it a map, but it is ethnically. These are people who have had never had contact with a monotheistic God, who have no background 
of Judaism. They're simply seeking truth. That's why it's so critical for us to understand if we're going to make heads or tails of everything that's going on this morning and we're looking at, especially with the Ephesian followers, we need to remember this context, this change that's going on, this transition and the outflow of the Holy Spirit. Because when Paul comes across these 12 people, what's the word that's used to describe them? Disciples. Now, anywhere else in the book of Acts, we read that word disciples, and we would think, okay, they're followers of Jesus Christ. They have heard the gospel. They are people who have given their heart to Christ, who have been born again and repented of their sins. But what unfolds before us as we read this is, is, is strange to Paul's ears. It, it's shocking. So as he comes across and he's interacting with he has two questions. And the first one is this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And what's their, what's their response? No, we didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. That was a red flag for Paul. <laughs> it's a red flag because he himself in Romans 8 and 9 says this, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, there is the Holy Spirit comes upon us. That's when we are sealed in Christ. That's when we are guarded and we are led now. He is in us. And Paul says, you never heard of the Holy Spirit? we got a problem here. So not obviously was there something grievously defective in their understanding of the gospel, but there was something seriously wrong in their experience of the gospel. And so he goes to the second question. He says, well, into what baptism were you baptized then? And we respond, well, we were baptized by John's baptism. Well, what is that? Well, you go back to Luke chapter 3, verse 3. John's baptism is what? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist is calling faithful Jews to recognize that the Messiah has come. That through him, that through him, uh, faith and repentance is, is, is now available. But just a few verses later on, in verse 16, chapter 3, he continues and he says this, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to tie. And then, listen to this, he says, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. See the problem for Paul? He knows John the Baptist's message has always included the coming of the Holy Spirit. That is the inauguration of the kingdom for us. And yet these men claim to have been baptized into John's baptism, but they don't know the Holy Spirit. They say, we didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. Again, for Paul, this was a huge red flag. Paul's questions to them about baptism aren't around the mode of baptism. They're not around whether you were dunked or sprinkled, but they are around the object of their faith. He says, who did you, or, uh, in whom were you baptized? Was it in Christ or was it something else? That's why when Paul actually shares with them that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of John, uh, John's prophecy or John's message, when they repented, he says, well, you need to now be baptized. So he, he says, 
because the object of your baptism, the object of your faith was wrong, your baptism is useless. It was ineffective. It was nullified. John the Baptist's message was clear. The Messiah was coming. Salvation and forgiveness of sins would be found in him. And when he comes, he would dispense of the Holy Spirit to all those who believe in him. But these 12 men hadn't heard of Jesus. They hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit. Now we need to remember that this is some 50 years after John the Baptist was actually out preaching. So it's not like they heard from John the Baptist themselves. They heard a message of a message of a message that had handed down through the telephone line, and somehow it had got truncated, so the very guts of the gospel, that is the person of Jesus Christ, was nowhere to be found. The promise of the Holy Spirit was, was nowhere to be found. So these men were not disciples. These men were not saved. Now what does Paul do next? Recognizing that there is a serious heart problem, a, a severely defective understanding and experience of the gospel, Paul preaches to them and explains, you know what, whatever you may have heard, John's message was always the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and that the Holy Spirit would come in power. That's why upon hearing that, they repented, they believed, they were baptized. And that's why the Holy Spirit immediately comes upon them. They are part of that next new wave, that natural extension of the gospel going forth. The Holy Spirit was poured out on them, just like at Pentecost, because they represented the new high watermark of the gospel, of God's redemptive plan, the gospel going forth even to the very ends of the earth. These were not God-fearing men like Cornelius. Cornelius worshipped God as much as he could according to the standards of the Old Testament. Cornelius was waiting for a savior. Cornelius had a God-centered worldview. These guys didn't. The understanding that these 12 were woefully incomplete in their understanding and their faith was so misplaced, and yet when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, they repent. They're born again, and the Spirit comes down confirming that, yes, even those who are farthest away from the truth can know Jesus Christ, and simply receiving Him as Savior, they are saved. Again, as such, they represent the gospel going to the very ends of the earth, that from every culture, every walk of life, every religious background, who with or without any knowledge of a Savior can by faith receive Him and receive the forgiveness of sins. Now this is a different situation than what we see with Apollos. Paulus, we read in verse 25, was also baptized in the way of John. But we also read that he was fervent in spirit. He had the Holy Spirit. He preached by way of the Spirit. So the object of his faith was true. It just may not have been as clear in his understanding as it could have been. 
Somewhere he had heard the full context of John's message, that the Messiah would be revealed and that there would be forgiveness of sins now available to all people in his name. He was fervently preaching that message. He even understood that Jesus Christ was somehow that Messiah. He just didn't know how that all worked out yet. So his faith had been justified and he was preaching. And he was an eloquent preacher. Everything that we read here really raises him up even above Paul. In fact, they're, they're almost competing here, which we'll come to in 1 Corinthians. <laughs> There's that issue of I'm a Paul and I'm of Apollos. But he is eloquent. He's trained in the Scriptures. He comes from Alexandria, which is considered the repository of all learning. Out of the seven wonders of the ancient wor world, the, the library of Alexandria was one of them. So he, he's coming from a culture that loves and trains and seeks after knowledge. He's trained in how to understand the Messiah has come, the kingdom of God has come, and how to trace those lines of redemption through the Old Testament. The problem is when Priscilla and Aquila hear him preach, they understood that something was missing, something wasn't quite right. He was preaching boldly of Jesus Christ, but there was something incomplete in his message. Now, some of you old fogies like me may remember there was a, uh, a syndicated radio program in the 70s and the 80s that used to be called, uh, and now you know the rest of the story. It was a, a guy by the name of Paul Harvey. And uh, they would take a, an issue, and you would usually hear only one side of the story, and then he would actually investigatively go through and give you all the information. And at the, other, at the end of it, he would say, and now you know the rest of the story. The best way to understand Apollos' message is that he still needed to hear the rest of the story. He needed to hear that Jesus Christ had died for sinners. He needed to hear that Jesus Christ had rose from the grave and even walked on this earth talking and preaching what was going to happen yet he needed to hear that Jesus Christ had ascended unto glory and is there as the right hand of, of, of our intercessor forevermore. He needed to hear that the kingdom of God had come in Jesus Christ. It was inaugurated. The object of Apollos' faith was true. It was just incomplete. He was unaware exactly how all of those fulfillments worked out in Jesus Christ. Now, unlike the 12 men from Ephesus, Apollos' faith was firmly based in the Old Testament promises that God would send his anointed. It was firmly based in the person of Jesus that somehow this Jesus who walked this earth 30 years ago was that Messiah. He just wasn't aware of how all of this spiritually worked out. And that's why when Priscilla and Aquila they tell him the rest of the story. Did you notice he didn't have to be baptized? That's an interesting thing, isn't it? He, he understood Jesus was the Messiah, but didn't have a, a faintest idea of how it all worked out. And yet when he comes to an understanding, he doesn't have to be baptized. Not like the twelve. Why? Because the object of his faith was true. He had only experienced the, the, the baptism of John, 
a, a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, but because it was based on the promises of God that were unknowingly, at least to him at that moment, already fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the baptism of John was all he needed. Now, I need to throw this out as a question. Was the baptism of Apollos Christian baptism? Yes. Yes, because all of those who are justified by faith in the Old Testament, looking forward to the promises of God being fulfilled in the Messiah, yes, they are justified. Likewise, Apollos. He just wasn't fully aware of how history had played out yet. Now, if you're trying to wrap your brain around all of this, and it's a bit tricky at times, when I'm talking about Apollos' uh, baptism as Christian, think of it this way. First of all, we're not told that he was told to be baptized. This is in direct opposition to the 12 men that we read about right after. Right? So that there is a comparison going on here. When the object of your faith is wrong, you need to be baptized, no matter what was happened before that. When the object of your faith is right, your baptism holds true. Remember, too, John the Baptist never had to be baptized, did he? What about the apostles? They only ever knew the, uh, the baptism of John. Even after Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and they started to be aware of all of the ramifications of the gospel, they were never baptized again in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They were baptized only by, in the name of John. How about Jesus? If it was necessary for him to fully identify with us after he rose from the grave, would it not be necessary for him to be baptized? But he wasn't. And so likewise, his identity with us is fulfilled in his death and his resurrection. The apostles didn't need another baptism. Christ himself didn't need another baptism. <laughs> Apollos didn't need another baptism. Apollos looked to the promise being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The twelve from Ephesus didn't even know that the Messiah was expected. The twelve from Ephesus didn't even know that the Holy Spirit existed. Paul had at least experienced and was preaching in the power of the Spirit. All sounds a little bit confusing, doesn't it? We need to understand, here's the third transition. The book of Acts for us is itself a transition. Okay? When we read it, it tells us that there is this seismic change going on from promise to fulfillment, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The kingdom of God was breaking into this world in a unique way. And the impact of the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ was not yet fully understood. What does this all mean? Even by the apostles. Think of it this way. It's not like the day after Pentecost, people got out of bed and said, Ah, a brand new day. God's kingdom is here. All the promises in Christ are mine. Hallelujah. They didn't understand. And so the book of Acts explains this to us. As the gospel goes forth, as those promises unfurl, we see that coming true. Throughout the book of Acts, we read of the church dealing and coming to grips with all of this, don't we? Do, do we receive Gentiles 
as part of Israel. Well, what do we do with circumcision? What do we do with the dietary laws? Do we need to enforce all of that on them? Well, no. What we read in Acts, and really what is important to understand today, is we see a practical outworking of the gospel. A practical outworking that would take years to fully understand the implications of God's plans and purposes. Now, here's the thing. What the vignettes of Apollos and the 12 apostles tell us, or sorry, 12 uh, disciples from Ephesus, is that in this time of transition, before the New Testament scriptures are written down and canonized and given to the church as true history, as true spiritual truth, there are many gospels floating around. Some are incomplete, some are downright just off the mark. Again, think of that telephone line. <laughs> and you've heard something from somebody from somebody and it's gone down 30 upwards to 50 years. But there is no repository of truth yet. The New Testament hasn't been brought together to verify all of that. And we see the church wrestling with these issues, saying, what does this all mean? That's why it's so important to understand that the little phrase, strengthening the church, is at the heart of everything that's going on here. Paul is about to start his third missionary journey. It's somewhere approximately 30 years after Christ has been raised again from the dead, 50 years since the time that John the Baptist preached his gospel. Somewhere in all of that, Many Gospels have been diffused and gone out. Instead of running ahead of God, instead of saying, I'm a missionary, I am anointed by God to the nations, and this is what I'm going to do next, Paul says what? I will go only if the Lord wills. And in the interim, I build up the church of God. I strengthen the believers. We guard the Gospel because that is what is precious to us. So instead of running ahead of God, doing his own thing, he's led by the Spirit to put his attention on strengthening the disciples. Apollos was a great orator, a great preacher, but his understanding was incomplete, so it needed to be adjusted before he could go out. And when he's filled in with the rest of the story by Priscilla and Aquila, he eagerly takes a letter of commendation and goes out to Achaia, a place where Paul has already gone and planted churches. By the way, a letter of commendation is simply, if you received one from us today, we would say, you're a member in good, good standing, you are a servant of the Lord, you've got a great heart to serve, and we recommend you to, to this other church. So he receives this letter of commendation, Priscilla, Aquila, and the fledgling church in Ephesus, and he goes forth to Achaia. Paul heads out into the very area where Paul, sorry, Apollos heads out into the very area where Paul had pioneered the gospel. And when we read the effect of his ministry, what does it say? He greatly helped those who through grace had come to faith. How did he do that? Well, it says very specifically by powerfully refuting the Jews in public. 
He was a great orator, a great debater, probably much better than Paul. From everything we know about Paul, Paul was hesitant. He could, he could talk and interact with people, but he wasn't necessarily the one who would stand up and give an hour preach a sermon and rebut, rebut, rebut every question that came at him. Paul, Apollos' main ministry was apologetical. He could debate and out-debate any of the Jews. And that's important. Because if you have new baby Christians in Christ, fledgling churches, they're struggling to understand their faith, and yet they continue to be inundated by what? All of the philosophies and the concerns of this world. And, and very few of them would be able to raise a, a logical, biblical argument that would strengthen their faith. And yet now along comes Apollos, powerful preacher, steeped in the Word of God, and God uses him mightily. Imagine how we were encouraged by people like R.C. Sproul, and I know several people in here were greatly encouraged by Rabbi Zacharias. You know, the ministry of apologetics isn't so much to, to say you need to repent because this is the truth. It's to build up the church in their understanding that there is a logical, true gospel. And it can refute anything that the world has to offer. The, the reality, the very, there's very few people who come to saving faith through apologetics. There are people standing up and rebutting. The main ministry is for the church. As we interact with Darwinism, as we interact with the change of sexuality, as we interact with all of these cultural realities around us, God raises up in our midst men and women of God who know Scripture and who can interact with them and give godly, biblical advice. And we say, yes, amen, because I couldn't do that. And, and under that withering gaze, under that withering pounding from our culture saying, give in, I know that there's truth, even though I can't necessarily articulate it. That was the ministry of Apollos. And the word, actually here, he was powerful. It gets the idea that he literally just obliterated any argument that came. Scripture after Scripture, truth after truth. He proved Jesus Christ was the Messiah. When Paul encountered the 12 disciples from Ephesus, he was able to change their understanding, show them the true object of their faith, and therein guard the gospel. When Priscilla and Aquila went to Apollos, they guarded the gospel by saying, you don't quite know it all. Let us tell you the rest of the story. So to put everything in context this morning, because I've not necessarily gone from verse 1 to the end. It, because of all of these transitions, I've tried to show the transitions and, and the, uh, the reality of the baptisms, uh, the question of baptism out of that. But here, if we were to put the context of everything in place, here's what's going on. Oh, I don't have it on. The context in the seismic shift between the Old Testament and the New Testament between promise and fulfillment in Christ, there was a great need to build up the church by guarding the precious essentials of the gospel. It starts with Paul. We see it in Priscilla Aquila. And it ends with Paul as well. 
and the second meeting of the uh, disciples. Now, if you haven't figured out where I'm going with this yet, <laughs> the reality is, is we live in the same transition, don't we? We live in a situation that is analogous to that because we live in the time of now but not yet. We have so many wonderful, precious promises in Jesus Christ, and yet there are some that we're still waiting and yearning for. It is the kingdom has come, but not completely. Christ has come and we are freed from sin, but not completely yet. We still struggle. So it's this concept of now, but not yet. The kingdom, <coughs> the kingdom of God has broken into our world. And there is a, a now a, a yearning for its completion. We yearn that that kingdom would be fulfilled. We yearn for the day of justice and righteousness to reign. We yearn for the day when sin would no longer have any dominion or influence over us. We yearn for the day when we will be with God forever. Now, but not yet. And we know that there are lots of gospels out there, don't we? We know that there are lots of false understandings of who Jesus Christ is. False traditions, false philosophies, false religions, false denominations who would preach things that sound Christian, and yet they deny the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Beyond that, we have the trial of even within the evangelical church, there are way too many of us who are not preaching Christ. We're preaching health and welfare. There are churches in Florida who spend nothing but their time dealing on healthy sexual marriages. There's all kinds of things that the gospel speaks into, but if we don't guard the essential core, the integrity of the gospel, and that being specifically the person of Jesus Christ, we are in danger. We're only ever one generation away from losing it all. We are stewards of the truth, and we are in a time of transition. Everywhere we go, we are to bolster, to build up the truth, to encourage others in Christ. And so if I was to put a purpose statement or a big idea on this sermon, it would be this. We await the fulfillment of God's promises between the now and not yet. We must be mindful and diligent to strengthen the church by guarding the integrity of the gospel. That is Jesus Christ. Now, some very specific applications. The, first and foremost, there, there's a necessity to be diligent at this, right? We understand, again, that there are different gospels, interpretations of, of the message of, of Christ. Even within our own evangelical ranks, we need to be zealous in preaching Christ crucified and not getting caught into the politics of our culture and bringing all of that into the church and having us more defined by our political realities, our, our social cultural connections rather than the gospel itself. We're called to make disciples. Make disciples doesn't simply mean, you know, bring something, someone to Jesus Christ. The rest of the command is, teaching them all things that I have taught you. There is an ongoing work of, uh, of building people up in their faith. 
We need to guard the, the integrity of the gospel in our day. And perhaps no more so than, than any other generation, perhaps more so than any other generation. Because we know that there is such a, a proliferation, a diffusion of the gospel around us. Even in the evangelical church, it is not exactly clear who preaches Christ crucified. A second application would be that this task is for all of us. Now, there are some, like Paul, who are pioneers. When we were in Chile, we had a guy by the name of Ray Morse. He went in with no contacts. He would establish himself, get to know people, share the gospel, and start churches. And he just had that natural ability, a self-starter. But everyone after that came in and picked up and went forward. But, but think of who's here. Apollos was that man, wasn't he? He went in after Paul and built up the church. But take one step back even more. Who taught Apollos? Priscilla and Aquila. I, I think at this point, just as an aside, we need to remember that the first time we ever really hear about this pair, at least uh, historically in, in, in a time frame, was in uh, 1 Corinthians. And it is uh, Aquila and Priscilla. But through the rest of the scriptures, and what we have here is Priscilla and Aquila. So somehow during that time frame, Priscilla has outstripped her husband in godliness and discernment and the ability to speak into the lives of those around her to help them understand the gospel better. But God calls men. He calls women. He calls couples. This is not something that we can say, well, we leave it to the missionaries. We leave it to the pastors and the elders. This is something each and every one of us must do. Because I need to hear the gospel preached to me. You need it preached to you. And clearly, repeatedly, because we are forgetful, our hearts pull us in the wrong direction. And we need to be brought back to that true north time and time again. 1 Corinthians tells us, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. As we go forth, I want to just send another application. Is you, you know this. We're going to meet people with different or varying degrees of understanding of the gospel. And, and I think most of the time we're willing to engage with that and to help them understand a, a little bit better. But what is your reaction when you come across somebody who has the gospel so wrong and yet are, is so adamant and so fervent about it? And do you back away and just say, well, that's not for me. I'm not an apologist. I don't have the gifts of Priscilla and Aquila. No, we need to, every opportunity we get, clarify the gospel, clarify Jesus Christ. I think the last thing I just want to point out in application is the importance of baptism. That's at the heart of the two vignettes that we have, right, between the 12 disciples from Ephesus and Apollos. The truth is not all baptism is baptism. 
Baptism is supposed to be the, uh, the outward demonstration that we are followers of Jesus Christ. But the problem is, if we get the object of our faith wrong, if we don't clearly understand the gospel, if we don't clearly receive Jesus Christ as our Savior for our sins, our baptism could be nullified. It was never effective in the first place because the object of our faith was wrong. So there is an understanding, as we put these two side by side, an adequate acknowledgement or an, a, a, an adequate understanding of the gospel is necessary for baptism to be useful and effective in the lives of people. You don't have to be mature and understand all doctrine and theology. You don't have to have everything worked out. But you do have to understand that the gospel is repent and believe. And there are evangelical communities that separate these by perhaps years. You can be Lord, but you're not Savior. This, has, this is all foreign to Paul. When you believe, you are filled with the Spirit. When you believe, you should become convicted of baptism and following through. Without a full knowledge of the gospel, without knowing the object of your faith, your baptism could be useless. And I challenge you this morning. We want to be people who are reaching those around us, every opportunity to seize that for Christ. But do we always try to accurately pinpoint the gospel? That is Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And then what about our own hearts? Well, we look at ourselves, and it may have been years since our baptism. Can you effectively say that, yes, the object of my faith was true? I didn't understand everything, but it doesn't matter. It was sufficient. So it starts with us. The gospel must be true. It must be life for us. And with that, we must guard the truth. Because again, I, I look out here, I'm almost 60. My time on this earth is almost gone. You young people, Ken, you're laughing. Ten years, who knows where the Lord is going to take you? You guys are the ones who are the guardians of the gospel in the days and the years to come. Take this sound seriously, because without it, there is no gospel. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise and glory for all that you've done. 